Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. In 1987, Republican President Ronald Reagan addressed then-General Secretary of the Communist Party of the USSR, Mikhail Gorbachev. I'm old enough to remember not the speech, but the existence of the USSR. Reagan commented directly on the Berlin Wall, a physical monument to the separation between oppressors and a more free and just society. The famous words, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Greetings, and welcome to Fuckboys of Literature. I'm your host, Emily Edwards. In the past two weeks, Americans across the country and people all over the world have taken ropes and chisels and tools of varying kind, not to walls, but to statues. Equally divisive, who is deemed worthy of a statue is a political act. I'm proud to live amongst people who have taken such direct action to redefine who is or who is not a hero in the world. To an extent, that's also what today's guest has done. Throughout our interview, you'll hear her say that the purpose of the book is not to mock writers, but the people who lionize them. And because she's way, way more famous than me, I was a coward and didn't push back. I should have. Some of these writers were virulent anti-Semites. They were racist, abusive, and sexist, and we know that as a fact. What FBOL has tried to do from the beginning is what Republicans claim statues of Confederate generals do, teach history, and what those statues completely fail to do, provide context. I won't say it's fine to teach the works of violently bigoted writers, but since that would erase like 90% of what's been written by Europeans over the years, I would prefer if we added the context of the writer's time, era, and society. And in the end, I want people to know, it's okay to tear down some statues. Sometimes they deserve it. And with me today is writer, podcaster, and author, Dana Schwartz, how the hell are you? I am, you know, as good as I can be in these insane times. The world feels like yeah, it's the... collapsing around us. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it, I've recorded the last couple of our episodes during quarantine times, and every time it's like, I'm okay. Yeah, but <laughs> you know, like I, this is very stressful. I feel very lucky. Like I can work from home, and you know, I have an apartment and a cat keeping me company, so I'm okay. Yeah. And then every time I, you know, tune into the news and see the outside world, I'm like, oh my god, that's yeah. yeah. We're we're living in a very distinct shit show right now, yeah. and it's hard to keep a handle on everything. So I have probably taken the insulting route of going 
even deeper into my like desire to make everything funny. So it's a good thing to have a show where you just get to like rip into dead people for a little while. Truly God bless any excuse just to be distracted and make fun of the, the world. Yeah, especially when it's stuff that is like just so ingrained in culture. So your book, The White Man's Guide to White Male Writers of the Western Canon. It's a mouthful, yeah. You know, but I love it because it sums the whole thing up. It's true. And obviously when the book came out at the end of last year, uh, my podcast had been going for like a couple months by then. And everybody just kind of sent me the link and was like, you're going to need to get this. Oh my God. Well, I hope you liked it. I loved it. I loved it. I was cackling. I cackled pretty much throughout the entire first time I read it. And then I was brushing up on it yesterday. I reread the entire thing and I had forgotten well, now that we had covered even more of the subjects that like you have also covered, like it was just so nice to to just kind of like give you the mental like I see you. Yeah. you know, like yep. we all know this is happening. Yep. I feel like and it's so funny, like some crazy like whatever, like the sexists like on the internet are like, oh Dana wants to cancel all books by white men. And I was like, oh my God, no. The reason I can make fun of them is because this is like the most punching up physically possible. Exactly. Like, no, no. Ernest Hemingway is going to be fine, really. Yeah. His legacy will remain untarnished by my words, but not by his actions. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, also probably by his actions. Yeah, exactly. Because uh, getting into these guys and writing about them... And especially doing research for, well, like we've done a couple of the authors specifically on the show. We've done David Foster Wallace and Brett Easton Ellis, but like mostly just works by some of the guys that you've written about. And it's like, once you start getting into the research, you're like, oh, oh, you're a truly despicable human being. Oh my God. Everyone is so bad. That's really the worst part is like looking into people that you once admired and people whose works you loved and be like, Oh, well, I, now that I know you're a bad person, does that affect how I approach your work? Like I love Charles Dickens. Like I love Dickens yeah. books. And like, then you read about his personal life and you're like, okay, he was kind of a shitty guy, but does that yeah. affect my enjoyment of great expectations? And it's like, well, to some degree, but to some degree, not it's, it's an interesting and, and balanced uh, mental gymnastics process yeah i think uh, i think over time and talking with people i've come to terms with the people who are dead like i can be like all right you are in history you are a part of history i can enjoy your work for like the space and time but i definitely still have a problem with like the dudes who are still alive and then i just like kind of cut myself off there oh yeah so many people if you're like alive in 2020 and right and being an asshole yeah stop it yeah you don't deserve yeah, this attention. deeply shitty yeah <laughs> i have to ask from just like a personal perspective when you take on the personality of guy in your mfa <laughs> or like the narrator of this do you ever just feel like squicky about it um not really i think because i know that i'm uh that the joke is so obvious like everyone reading it yeah. is is in on the joke i think like if anyone ever took it seriously I'd feel squicky about it but like because yeah. the parody is so obvious 
at least to me, I hope. Uh, yeah, no, it is. Yeah. <laughs> well, it is to someone who also went through, or at least a BA process of getting a literature degree. So yeah, it's very familiar. Oh, that's actually my my dirty secret is I never actually got uh, my MFA. Oh, I don't. I never went you... through. I know. I don't. I don't have an MFA. Just undergraduate, graduated. Yep. And uh, I sort of tweeted myself out of it. I was applying for MFA <laughs> programs, and uh, I think I. I wanted, I was planning on doing it and I've applied to a few programs. I got into a few programs. I was like, going to do it. And then I was like, oh, well, you know, you know, not worth it. <laughs> Maybe I'll yeah. just go be an adult. <laughs> you know, I think I'm a little bit older than you. So I graduated right into the recession and oh, the yeah. MFA was definitely the way that people were like, I see what's happening. I'm going to hide for a little while. And I don't blame them one bit, but yeah. I can definitely understand of just being like, I don't think I need this right now. Well, I feel like I was very fortunate in in getting a foothold in my career where like now I'm I'm working as a writer, which I, I absolutely don't take for granted for a single second. And I think that I definitely just have those like escapist fantasies where I'm like, oh, wouldn't it be so nice just to give everything up and go be out in the world? Uh yeah. You know, like in a beautiful bucolic campus, like just writing mm -hmm. and reading all day. But it's like, well, the same things that bother me and like my own insecurities and my anxiety is, is going to follow me. I'm just fantasizing. Yeah, exactly. To no matter, I don't know where the Iowa Writers Workshop is. Technically, I've never been to the the city where it's located, but it's going to have the same issues as LA, New York, any place we've ever lived. Yeah. Yeah. Just a lot more corn. Uh, I 100% agree. I feel like I wanted to go to like England and I'm like, I'll just live in England and read and write. And it's like, okay, well, I could be writing now and I'm procrastinating all the time. I would probably just be procrastinating in England, putting my career on hold, <laughs> spending a ton of money just to not write somewhere else. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And then there's the visa issues. A friend of mine just went uh, and got his MFA in composition in Scotland for a little while. And I was like, what? that, that was an so interesting fun. choice. Right? I, I mean, yeah, I'm jealous. It sounds that great. Sounds but... Romantic and, and nice. Yeah, yeah. But uh, <laughs> it was just a, I am way too practical for that. I think that's one of the reasons why I didn't go head over heels in my literature program. Where I was just like, I am far too like cut and dry no gray areas for stuff like that <laughs> yeah I fully I totally get that I was hoping when I was going through the list of authors in your book that I wasn't going to see my favorite but I did and it who's your <laughs> and favorite I'm a little ashamed I love Kurt Vonnegut more than I probably should oh well you know what <laughs> I also love Vonnegut and if you I mean you read that chapter and it's not, uh, I mean, Vonnegut's great. The thing about the book that I did want to be super clear is like, I'm not making fun so much of all of the authors so much as I'm making fun of the guy who thinks that those authors are the yes. only people that matter. So like Vonnegut's actually not a bad person. I think, I think he's great. And I love, yeah, I love Vonnegut books. Um, but who I am making fun of, I hope in that chapter are like the people who, think that yeah. Vonnegut is the only thing that matters. And if you haven't read Vonnegut, you're an idiot. And also he's a, the truest genius that there's ever been born. And he's the yeah. only one who understands him. 
Yeah. What's really funny is like we, I did an episode on David Foster Wallace with a very good friend of mine. And as you can imagine, the amount of vitriol we get for that one particular episode is like pretty intense. Oh yeah. Oh my God. Uh, There's a certain YouTube clan of dudes. And what's really funny is that like the first 10 minutes of my friends and my conversation is that like, we actually really like his work and we can tell how he changed literature. The problem is his fans. Yeah. Also, I mean, like not to be whatever about it, but like David Foster being, making fun of David Foster Wallace is basically like Pat at this point. Like really? Yeah, people exactly. Think that, that you were going to upend his legacy. Uh, you know, they're pretty well trodden boards of jokes of trying to be like this guy. He's the patron saint of just like absolute yeah. fuckboys everywhere. Like, this is not a new joke. Yeah. I mean, like, aren't they used to it by now? They need a thicker skin. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Because they get, uh, you know, as men on the internet do, people get a little punchy when you like punch back and it's like, buddy, I'm not changing any minds here. You either agree with us or you don't. Totally. I think it's people (laughs) not. And it's like, aren't these the people that think like, oh, everyone's too sensitive about everything. It's like, oh my God, take a joke. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Was there like a gateway book or story where you started to realize like something was kind of fucked here? I mean, really the truth about everything that I I've done in, in, like guide near MFA and the white man's guide is like, I'm not making fun of the author so much as I'm making fun of the people, like I said. And so the gateway was sort of like my senior year of college, realizing that I do want to become a writer and I want to take it seriously and like devote myself to this craft and just getting really fed up by like the pretensions of other lit Mm. students. And like the, the, I sort of, and it's, to be totally fair, it's an impulse that I have in myself too. Like a lot of what I'm making fun of with Guy Near MFA, like I'm making fun of myself too. It's like we all yeah. are imitating the uh, certain idea we have of what quote unquote good, important literature is. And yeah. we, so we all sort of are, are, are at a point when you're, when you're a young writer learning we're sort of like mimicking that. Like we're all pretending to be good mm-hmm. writers, like whatever we think good writers are. And so that's yeah. mostly what the breaking point was, where I felt that impulse yeah. in myself to be like, oh, a good, serious work of literature is about a sad white guy. And <laughs> yeah, then realizing basically. that that's not necessarily the case. <laughs> no, because, you know, and then there's also the aspect, which was a lovely little running joke in in your book, was that like, there is also the genuine hurt that comes from being rejected. Yeah. And that's something that you have to learn when you are someone who is a writer who is literally creating something from nothing. And your first instinct is to always want to be like, they just don't understand my genius. Yeah. I mean, I, trust me, I've been there. And also I'm the most insecure person in the entire world. Mm-hmm. And if I didn't have like a tiny shred of unearned confidence, it's like everything I do is great. Even the things I didn't work that hard on then I would not be able to be a writer. (laughs) 
exactly. It is like, it is a complete uh, two-sided coin of needing to believe that everything you do doesn't suck, but then knowing that everything sucks for a really long time. Yeah. It's 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 a little bit of a mania that you have to have. Oh, it's a it's a delusion almost certainly. <laughs> but one thing that like I've discovered while, you know, like really getting into books that I did not read ever before because I was not I didn't have a particularly good K through 12 education. And then I've discussed on the show before that, like when I was in college, I just didn't try real hard. Like I got good grades, but it was all just fucking off. So like, I haven't read most of these books. So it's been interesting to sort of um, dissect really like how uh, the culture has changed so much in like what's expected of male behavior, either from the authors or from the characters that they write, yeah. and what has completely not changed at all in the last like four hundred years. For sure. What's your what's your take on that? What's your what's your line? You know, it's funny because like I we've been doing it under the guise of fuckboy, which has like two very different definitions. You know, you have either the original colloquial version, which is just like a bad guy you don't want to know, but it's gotten extrapolated by, I would have to say like a lot of like white female writers to be like a guy who's no good to date. Mm. So we do have like two options to choose from. And it's like, man, these seeds have been planted for quite a long time. Yes, you are uh, absolutely correct on that. I love the the many varied uses of of the term fuckboy. I think it is a wonderful all-purpose expression that can can apply to a variety of men. It is. It is. It's it's multi-purpose, multi-use. It's like a leatherman tool of literary <laughs> of cultural discussion. Yes. <laughs> it's like that guy cuz there's a lot of people in like Shakespeare who are just like Fuck boys because they are very bad people. And then as you start get into the romantics and the Victorian era, that's when you start to notice, or at least I start to notice, like sexual politics get more into play. Mm. And it is so much fun. Interesting. I, yeah, I mean, I feel like I would read a, a treatise on the history of the fuckboy in literature. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll start to compile information. Yeah, get like on that. that. Because I loved some of the patterns that you picked on, even um, in discussing the writers that, you know, you notice that they have all multiple wives or they (laughs) give up their bill paying jobs just like a little bit too early. And then the one thing that actually surprised me the most was the shirking of the glory of winning awards. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like there were a couple of writers who were like, I'm not going to mention that I won the Nobel Prize for literature. Yeah, I feel like there's um there there's this like fake sense of modesty where if you've spent your entire life like getting you you still need to see yourself as like an outsider, right? Like as an mm-hmm. artist, you have to see yourself as as the underdog, that you're the one who can hold a mirror to society and you're the outsider who can see it clearly. Mm-hmm. But once you reach a certain level of fame and success and acclaim, you're you're not an outsider like by no definition you are fully the insider so it is this interesting thing of of sometimes seeing writers contort themselves to downplay their privilege or success to to um 
I think probably the simplest way to to represent it is like the struggling artist aesthetic. Yeah. Yeah, because it's such an interesting aesthetic that, like, granted, a lot of the writers that you do profile, like you have um, Bukowski and uh, Kerouac and things like that, and it's like guys who may not, uh, and Steinbeck especially, may not have grown up in the best of circumstances, but as we understand it now, like, they still do have, like, white male privilege. Yeah, oh, of course, and, like, I think a, a fundamental part of their privilege that, you know, is a, there's a thread in the book is that they have mm-hmm. other people doing a lot of logistical work for them where it's, yes. yeah, it's easier to be a creative writer. If you have, you know, your wife licking your stamps for you and like Vera yeah. Nabokov's wife was like doing coursework for him. Yeah. Like, like, yeah, they, they had infrastructure help. The, the idea of the lone genius doesn't exist. And it's a, yeah. it's a really damaging idea. Yeah, like, as you'd mentioned, like, this is nothing but like punching up towards guys, because you don't get to be a part of the canon without, you know, really starting from an inside baseball position. You just don't. Yes. And I think that actually, you were talking about like angry YouTube people. I feel like Mm -hmm. angry YouTube people have probably willfully misunderstood. When I say we need to destroy the, the white, you know, the white male canon, I'm not saying destroy these books. I'm no, like protect not. the works. I'm saying the thing I'm taking issue with isn't the books. It's this very sexist, very Eurocentric notion that these are the books you need to read to have yeah. been well read. The yeah. concept of a canon itself is the thing I want to, to attack, not the works. Exactly. Exactly. Like this facade of quality of writing that requires you to like check off, like tick off the check marks of just like, it did this person be born, was this person born into nobility? Did they speak 15 different languages? Did they have the means to even take on the air of poverty? You know, it's like, because they're not going to have the skills or the, the means to be writers if they were born into like abject poverty, but then you have people like Lord Byron who put on the airs of it. Yes, of course. He was literally a lord. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why that hadn't like ever really occurred to me that he was like Lord Byron because he was born into fucking landed gentry. Like he was a house of lords like guy. And it never really occurred to me until I was, you know, embarrassingly 33 years old that this man was born into like, he didn't have a whole lot of money, but it's, that doesn't necessarily give you the privilege. Yeah. And you're also like, okay, I get it. You don't have a lot of money compared to other lords, but also like you're at Cambridge and you're, you're spending your life traveling Europe and writing poetry. Like, okay, I get that you're not as wealthy as your incredibly wealthy peers, but you are not doing labor at a farm to support your livelihood. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, You're not living off of like rotten turnips and you are allowed to like carve your name into the Sphinx in Egypt. Like (laughs) these are things you're allowed to do because you're Lord Byron. Yeah, like, like, I mean, that's the thing about privilege that people who are bad people uh, don't <laughs> fundamentally understand. Like, it doesn't mean that you don't have your own struggles. It just means that you yeah. you don't have certain struggles that other people have. 
Yeah. I mean, I am a, I'm a white woman who grew up in Fairfield County, Connecticut. I understand that. Like, and you know, and the first time you're really confronted with the concept of like wheels were greased for you without you knowing. And if you don't have like emotional maturity, you're just kind of like, no, they weren't. I've had to struggle. Yes, they were. They were greased for you for centuries. I completely agree. Yeah. And I think it's like, it was interesting that like, you do cover a lot of modern writers, like guys born after the turn of the, the 20th century. Yeah. But it's just so funny how the um, the description of the the things that prop them up are different from the gentlemen who, you know, were propped up by other things. Like the wife labor just mm. is, will always knock me on my, on my ass. Yeah. No, the wife labor is a big one. I mean- the reason I feel like I cover later writers is like, those are the writers that I grew up reading and idolizing mm-hmm. and subconsciously or consciously uh, ingesting as the idea of what capital G good writing is. Yeah. Yeah. So, like yeah. Uh, I, I loved that you tackled, you know, and then uh, people like um, John Cheever who had uh, both, you know, problems with alcoholism and then just the I always have a lot of empathy for him because of his you know he had to live in the closet and wasn't really able to explore all of his desires and who he wanted to be and so it's not written like you've said without empathy for for these guys oh yeah and I love a lot of the only I mean one that I really hate is um you know if you stab your wife I feel like Norman Mailer like that you're you're, yeah. you're a bad person. Um, yeah, I'd probably push him down the stairs. But. Yeah, but uh, no, I love most of these writings and literature, and and I think it's it's incredibly important to study. But it's not the only thing that matters. Yeah, I know. Like, it's actually interesting because, like, okay, first of all, I will as a quick aside. I hate John Updike with the red hot passion of ten thousand sons <laughs> who once knocked my mother over in a library and didn't apologize, and then what? I just fucking hate John Updike. Yeah. Wait, tell that story. Okay, so when I was little, my parents moved to suburban Massachusetts for a little while because my dad got a job up there, and it was literally in the tiny, tiny town where John Updike lived. <laughs> sure. There was this tiny little library, then this tiny little town. My mom was coming out of the stacks, and John Updike didn't see her, and he just knocked into her like full <laughs> bore and knocked her down on the ground. And my mom looked up, and she went, God, is fucking John Updike. And I'm like... <laughs> picked me up from elementary school, like still fuming about John Updike. And I was like 10. So I had no idea who he was. But ever since I, you know, what you asshole. see John Updike on a reading list and you're just like, ah, fuck John Updike. Yeah, come on. <laughs> Don't knock a lady over. Honestly. But that being aside, I actually love most of the writers in this book. <laughs> yeah, no, same. I mean, I think yeah. a lot of people also hated on this book without reading it based on the title because they didn't yeah. also think it was a... Uh, Maybe they didn't realize it was parody, but uh, yeah. I feel like if you listen, to, if you read it, you're like, no, this is, it comes from a pla- a genuine place of love. Yeah. Yeah. It really does. Cause I, you know, it, it's hard. Let me think for a second before I ask the question. Um, it, it's hard because you, you, when you talk about literature and especially coming from an American school and I went to an American college and it was a private school huh. and I had 
paid way too much money to go there. And like, you are rarely, unless you seek it out, confronted with writers who are from other countries. Yeah. And I think uh, most I mainstream love- curriculum are, are absolutely Anglo-centric. Yeah. And, and to the point that I actually signed up one semester for world literature because I was just so tired of reading like British people and Americans. And two weeks before the semester started, the professor quit and they had to give us a different class. And the class we ended up with was literature of continental Europe. So it was mostly just French people and Germans. Yeah, sure. Continental Europe, world literature. Yeah, definitely the same thing. And it's just so heartbreaking that even when I when I put out APBs on Twitter and I'm like, can you recommend books that aren't from Britain, America, Canada, or like France? People kind of struggle. Yeah. I, you oh, know. we absolutely. I think that's the that's also the problem with with the idea of the canon as we have it. It's like a lot of people who want to be well read assume that reading this very limited diet makes them well-read. And I, I just, I fundamentally disagree with that. And I'm someone who's not as well-read as I wish myself. I feel like I deeply want to expand my literary horizons. Yeah. And then I wonder if people who are American or, uh, you know, European, I wonder if we ever, cause I do sometimes feel kind of like I'm appropriating other cultures when I read them, if I'm not reading them with like full educated context. I don't think that's what appropriating means. I feel like if you were rewriting them and then selling them yourself, but I don't think that's a good point. I mean, I don't think reading, (laughs) reading them is a, I think that's a fundamentally good thing that everyone should, should unequivocally support. Yeah. It just, I, I've always feel a little bit guilty that I hadn't read them before. Yeah. That I'm just getting to it now when I'm in my mid thirties. God, I feel that too. There's so much that I haven't read yet. I'm that's, I mean, that's a problem with being someone who wants to be well-read. It's like, you never will be. Yeah. There's always more. And then there's that heartbreaking feeling of knowing that there's people in, uh, uh, you know, other countries and other cultures that haven't made it past the gate. And you're reading the ones that, like, might have just been approved oh my by God. the Western canon. For sure. Oh, it's a whole big sack of worms, and it just sucks. I mean, the publishing industry is is not a meritocracy. Yeah, yeah, that was actually over. I, I again didn't learn until very recently that the New York Times bestseller list is not actually just people who sold the most books. I didn't know that. Wait, what is it? Apparently, it's like cherry picked of just like the editors of the New York Times book section. They choose like books that they rated well and are selling well, but they don't necessarily like list the people who got like who just are selling the most books. What? It's edited. I had no idea. Yeah. I I didn't know that until this year. Crazy. My mind was blown. And I didn't really know what to do with that information, aside from just get really upset. Yeah, that is, that's genuinely surprising. (laughs) And I guess um, my my last question for you is that the book stops with the Jonathans, which was (laughs) like, I I was giggling my ass off. and who are Gen Xers? Yeah. And I was wondering if you started to notice any millennial writers who are starting to get this kind of 
fanboyism. Oh, that's a tricky question. I think um, the reason that I ended with the Jonathans and also sort of didn't even say their actual names, although I think I do say their names probably at some point. Um, yeah, you list them, but yeah. yes. it's like I don't like I don't love to to uh, not pick on, but like make fun of living writers. Uh, yeah. Also, because I'll just come across as jealous, which I absolutely am. That's um, true, true. But like if their legacy isn't like secure yet, it feels a little strange. Like there's very few writers who are canonized while they're still producing their work yeah you know what I mean like like it's it's strange to be able to secure your legacy while you're still alive and I feel like there was that moment in the 90s where like yeah the young hot lit boys of of Mm -hmm. of literature are uh were yeah they secured their winning winning the big awards and 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 getting the big acclaim you know if if you know what I mean yeah I feel like now the literary landscape has changed a little bit where I feel like now if I were not making fun of, but if I did want to like parody a trend in, in popular literature, I think I would like more focus on like the Sally Rooney types, like this very like sparse literature from women about a very specific type of experience. Yeah. Which is again, like a really good point. Privileged, uh, distinct but also uh you know it's 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 a it's an aesthetic what i with the whole point with the white man's guide is i was poking fun at this idea that young writers imitate an aesthetic to try to feel Mm -hmm. good you know to try to feel like they're good writers oh sorry i don't know why my phone went off um I'll say that again. Oh, yeah. I went through my F. Scott Fitzgerald phase. I went through my Hemingway phase. I went through my Faulkner phase. I went through my uh, Beckett phase. That of one course. was fun. That one was college. Like, and I feel we like, all do it. And I feel like I wonder what nowadays people are imitating. And I do feel like maybe they're imitating something more like, you know, Sally Rooney or Tessa Moshfeg, which maybe shows we're mm-hmm. making progress. But it's still funny to me that there's always a very narrow understanding of what uh, good literature is. And then it's always mm-hmm. fun to see insecure, you know, MFA writers and, and young, young writers, uh, among which I absolutely am trying to capture that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a very good lesson to really dig deep and find your own, I don't want to say voice, because that sounds goofy, but like, and, and Pat, but like, you really, it, there's no sense in trying to write a book that sounds like someone else. Yeah, for sure. I think that's it. Exactly. And I think like imitation is how you learn and is how you improve. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's fun to to make fun of that pretension that we all, every writer has had at one point in yeah. their career. And, yeah. and I definitely still have. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, and it's also worthwhile to remember that like every writer who's part of the canon also went through that phase. A lot of people desperately tried to copy the blockbuster sellers of the generation before them. It's just part of learning. For sure. I think that's always so funny when it's like, ah, he was just imitating so-and-so. And And it's like, we don't even know who that writer is, but yeah, you know, someone was, you know, (laughs) desperately trying to be as successful as him. Exactly. Exactly. I, you know, 
I can't thank you enough for coming on. This was an absolute joy to talk to you. And if people haven't read the book yet, please pick it up from uh, you know your local indie bookseller who are struggling in these times, like they need it. And you will absolutely desperately enjoy this book. Dana, how can people keep in touch with you and your work? Oh gosh, uh, follow me on Twitter or Instagram at uh, Dana Schwartz with three Z's. Uh, Dana Schwartz <laughs> with one Z was taken and just aesthetically, I like three Z's better. So uh, yeah. Yeah, three Z's too. Cool. I mean, like, chances are everyone who follows us already follows you because we have a very small footprint. But thank you very much for doing this. It was an absolute blast. Thank you so much for having me. I had a lot of fun. And as always, you can subscribe, listen to, and review Fuckboys of Lit on most major platforms by searching the letters F-B-O-L. And keep in touch with me on Twitter at Fuckboys of Lit, that's B-O-I-S, or on fuckboysoflit.com. I'm also on Instagram under the exact same handle. We will be back next week at the same time and place. So in the meantime, stay safe, everyone. Wear your masks, wash your hands, and document your protests. I'm Emily Edwards, and have a good one. David Foster, being making fun of David Foster Wallace is basically like Pat at this point. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.